We are going to need fossil fuels in the foreseeable future. We need to level set. We need to understand that companies need to be part of a solution and that large oil and gas companies can be part of the solution. So we can't polarize this discussion in brown versus green and just expect high emitting companies to just spin off all their assets to the private equity sector because that's what we're seeing and that's what we're really concerned about. ESG has exploded into compliance and business consciousness in 2021. Join Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, on the ESG Report and learn about sustainability risks, opportunities, and issues that business leaders and compliance professionals need to know about regarding ESG. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today I have with me Ben Colton. Ben is with State Street Global Advisors, SSGA. I'm lucky enough to have been on a pod about once a year. I greatly look forward to it. He's always informative. You will see his passion for ESG, sustainability, and stewardship come through in this podcast. Well, Ben, first of all, welcome back to the pod. Thank you very much, Tom. It's great to be back. So could you tell us what your role is at State Street Global and maybe explain why you guys call it stewardship? Yeah, absolutely. I'm the global head of asset stewardship, including proxy voting and engagement. And we call it stewards because we believe we are stewards of capital. We are stewards of the investments which we have on behalf of our clients. We are long-term investors. We hold about over 13,000 companies and we are long-term shareholders as mostly an index spend fund manager. We're holding these companies as long as they're included in the index. So with that come long-term time horizon comes a responsibility for us to consider those positive and negative externalities, those long-term issues. And we engage with boards to try to understand what are the financially material risks and opportunities that the board needs to have oversight of and the board is considering and holding management accountable for executing on. So that's what stewardship to me is using those tools in our toolbox as an owner. And those tools include regulatory advocacy, publishing thought leadership, what is our views on different perspectives, what are our expectation companies, and then using the other two most powerful tools in our toolbox, which is engaging with companies as an owner and the voting piece, which is the accountability mechanism. Ben, as you know, I'm a consumer and I'm a consumer of State Street Global Thought Leadership. Part of it's talking to people like yourself. Part of it is reviewing some of the publicly released materials you have, but Frankly, one of the pieces is the annual CEO letter. And I've come to really look forward to that and appreciate that coming out because not only does it make a statement about State Street Global, but in many ways helps lead the discussion. So with that introduction, first of all, I'm going to hope I pronounce his name right, Cyrus Tarapura-Vela, and he's recently released the annual letter. And I wanted to maybe start with asking you, what's the purpose of the annual letter from your perspective? And why is it really released annually? So the annual letter outlines our stewardship priorities for the year, and it also reflects on what we've observed and what we've learned from our engagements in the previous year. This year's annual letter really is a continuation on what we've been discussing for a long period of time, and that's the systemic risks related to climate change, which continues to grow as a financially material risk and opportunity for all companies in our portfolio. And also those material risks related to a lack of diversity in thought and really the impetus for us launching our Fearless Girl campaign five years ago. So you'll see in our annual letter this year that we continue to focus on those two areas. On the climate change front, we've been calling on companies to consider these risks since 2014. We were early to support shareholder proposals asking for more disclosure. It's large oil and gas companies. 
we've been publishing a lot of thought leadership and we've advocated and endorsed TCFD disclosure framework for several years. So we think the conversation is very mature. Companies know where we stand and companies need to be reporting along all companies. We believe it's a financially material risk and opportunity, and they need to be reporting according to the TCFD framework. So we think that's baseline disclosure. We'll be holding companies accountable in all sectors for reaching our expectations for disclosing against that framework. Beyond that, a transition to a low carbon economy is absolutely fundamental and is and it's more financially material for companies in high emitting sectors, for example. So you'll see in our letter, we've published out expectations and what does a good climate transition plan looks like. Really one of the first asset managers to come out with clear cut expectations. And so we're going to be diving deep and engaging with 40 or 50 of the highest emitting companies in our portfolio to understand beyond what our expectations are, what are the, also the sector specific considerations that need to take into account? Because what a good transition looks like in the oil and gas industry is going to be completely different than what it's going to look like in the airlines industry. Yes, there's going to be a common denominator, and that's what we believe our framework is getting after. But we also want to engage with companies to understand sector specificity and start to identify laggards and leaders in terms of disclosure. And we will use our vote to hold those laggards accountable, and we'll start doing that in 2023. Ben, I've been talking to you and or your predecessors now, I think, for about five years. And over those years, you've developed a series of tools that you have employed, both SSGA has employed, but also put out to the marketplace to help companies assess and quantify where they are on some of these issues. But this year, what I heard was something a little bit different, and you touched on it a couple of times, which is the opportunity. And whether you call it embracing transition as an opportunity, whether it is opportunity in the marketplace to drive greater profitability or greater growth of a company. I was wondering if you could share a few words about why you're seeing this or why SSG ACs climate change, particularly as such an opportunity for investment moving forward. Yeah, I mean, there's going to be a tremendous amount of capital that is going to be needed for this transition. So we think transition investing is absolutely essential. Companies can redefine their businesses. There's going to be a, an incredible amount of new opportunities as we transition to a low-carbon economy. Companies can use sustainability as a differentiator. And also we're seeing different consumer behavior. So we do think there's a huge opportunity set. What I think is extremely important is not to polarize this discussion of brown versus green. We need to look at this on a spectrum. Polarizing this discussion and shaming those companies that are brown could have some unintended consequences. The impact that you could have by going from dark brown to light brown could be even more meaningful than going from a green shade to maybe a darker green shade. So the pathway to getting to net zero is going to look different for different companies. It's not going to be linear. It's not even going to be linear for the same for companies all in the same sector. We want to understand how a company is planning to get there. What are the interim targets and goals? Knowing that CEO making make a commitment for 2050 today, but he or she is probably not going to be in a leadership position is well going to be retired maybe two or three leadership transitions by the time that these goals are going to start coming to effect. So we want to see those interim targets. We want to see the assumptions that are being made, the carbon prices. I think one of the unintended consequences of what we don't want to see is these opportunities going to the private sector. And they could be huge unintended consequences, especially for our clients that are quasi-universal owners or widely exposed. They could have a disproportional cost or bear disproportional quantities of the negative externality, and they can lose out on the opportunities for holding some of these high quality assets. As you push companies to become net zero, you want to ask not just when they want to get there, but how they're going to get there. 
Because if they're going to get there just by offloading these high emitting assets, because the cost of capital, the cost of disclosure, and the reputational cost is increasing by holding in the public sector, if they do just go and sell it to the highest private bidder, yes, your carbon emissions in your publicly listed portfolio will get reduced. And yes, a company may achieve net zero, but real carbon emissions, what's actually in the air may increase because a lot of these private equity companies, especially the smaller to mid-sized ones, which is snapping up all these assets, are hiring higher emitters, less efficient operators than some of these publicly listed companies, which are really efficient operators and have responsible owners. So what we don't want to see is everything being spun out, public costs at a private benefit, we would lose our seat at the table. We would lose disclosure because these private companies do not disclose to the public. And we would lose out on having these high quality assets and being an active owner and watching that transition and that wind down in a responsible manner. And I'd like to turn now to diversity. And once again, I found State Street Global Advisors to be one of the leaders in the discussion at very high level of corporations around diversity. I was wondering if you could give a few words about where you hope diversity initiatives might go in 2022 or perhaps even beyond. Absolutely. And this as well as we were one of the first large asset managers to call on companies to have a, their first female director in our Fearless Girl campaign in 2017 and implementing a voting guideline. We were among the first and have inspired other asset managers to follow our lead. And that's something that we're really proud of and it's something that's really well documented in empirical evidence as well, showing the impact that Fearless Girl campaign specifically has had on the market and the level of gender diversity, and especially in companies in the S&P 500. But what we were after was diversity in thought. Gender diversity is just one dimension of diversity in thought. Racial and ethnic diversity, which we called on companies to look at, have oversight of racial and ethnic diversity and add directors from underrepresented communities to their board as well. That's another indicator of diversity in thought because the literature points towards a critical mass of diversity in thought is going to lead to better business outcomes by seeing risks from different perspectives, less cronyism, less group thing, frank, the Janus literature, and also more innovation. So we're increasingly seeing that not having a critical mass of diversity in thought is a business risk. So it's our responsibility as a fiduciary to ensure that boards are considering diversity in thought, to ensure boards, especially at the board level, have robust nomination processes. Because if a company does not have a director from an underrepresented community, for example, if it's an all-white board, there's something fundamentally flawed with the nomination process itself. There's something structurally wrong, and the company needs to look at their nomination process and go beyond maybe who the existing board members know and widen that pool, ensure that there's a diverse slate of candidates, look beyond just former CEOs and think about skill sets from other groups to ensure that there's diversity in thought and to ensure that those positive benefits from a risk mitigation standpoint and from an innovation standpoint are harvested to ensure that companies maximizing its ability to generate long-term sustainable returns. Ben, when the Fearless Girl campaign came out, I was actually thrilled because at that point I had a teenage daughter and I could point to that to her and said, you can be that fearless girl and that a fearless this is where a fearless girl can go in the world, which is anywhere she wants to go. I don't know what the original intention of the company was in putting Fearless Girl out, but for me personally, it spoke to me and how I could talk to my daughter. And you've just articulated how your thinking has evolved going forward to a much broader set of gender ideas and beyond even perhaps gender. Are companies really engaging in that conversation as you've broadened it out past gender as well. 
Yeah, it's always been about diversity in thought. We had pretty robust data and also academic evidence pointing towards the power and the positive benefits and the correlation with or diversity in thought. So we started with gender diversity, but it's always been about diversity in thought. I'm really pleased to hear, Tom, that it has inspired your daughter because truly that was one of the intentions of Fearless Girl was to inspire a future generation of female leaders. So not only did we publish guidance in 2017 on the ways that companies can enhance their diversity-related practices across their workforce and came out with guidance such as ensuring a diverse set of candidates, promoting maybe a chief diversity officer, thinking about the barriers and the hindrances across their organization and eliminating them. And we engage with companies as well to understand best practices and publish that information. And we also, as you mentioned, announced our voting guidelines, which has such an impact. Our thinking has included other dimensions of diversity, but we're still after diversity and thought. We think the conversation is mature enough in the United States and in other markets where companies should be achieving at least 30% female representation within the next 12 months or having a meaningful game plan and a time-bound commitments to try to achieving those goals. So we think that the conversation has advanced. Although we called on companies to have one female director at the beginning, that was just a first step and it was a powerful first step. But really what we need is a critical mass that you can see that manifest itself in that 30% expectation. And I mentioned some of the thought leadership pieces that State Street Global posts on its website. And I wanted to maybe turn to some of those because it's really fabulous for someone like me and I assume a wide variety of others. In an article called The World's Targets Change, says that climate strategies are driving economic transitions. You touched on that a little bit, and I was wondering if you might be able to help us understand, and I was particularly struck by your remarks around how you could move from dark brown to light brown or light green to dark green. And, and I grew up in the energy industry in Houston, so I'm particularly attuned to that. But you see this as a really dynamic field that is almost on a company-by-company company analysis. There is going to be a lot of qualitative analysis. And that's why we want to spend the year diving deep into 40 or 50 companies and having really a targeted engagement campaign. But yeah, we have baseline expectations. And this was developed by looking at not only the IIGCC's framework, Climate Action 100 Plus, for example, their benchmark. And we engaged extensively with some of the highest emitting companies. We engaged with NGOs, we engaged with peer shareholders, academics alike to really come up with this framework. We want to understand what kind of technological advances companies might be assuming. We want to understand that in those interim goals and, and when they're going to get there, we want to understand what carbon price assumptions are they making? What different scenarios are they taking into consideration? We also added a, key, a few State Street specific disclosure expectations because we think that all companies should be considering the physical risks related to climate change. And we also want to understand more granularity on how companies are disclosing with other stakeholders beyond just their shareholders as well. So you'll see that those different points in our guidance expectations of what we want to see from companies. But yes, a lot of it is qualitative and we are going to be diving deep because it is going to differ company by company, but we need to start establishing baseline expectations and we need to start holding companies accountable for reaching those baseline expectations. But yes, I think we are going to need fossil fuels in the foreseeable future. We need to level set. We need to understand that companies need to be part of a solution and that large oil and gas companies can be part of the solution. So we can't polarize this discussion in brown versus green and just expect high emitting companies to just spin off all their assets to the private equity sector, because that's what we're seeing and that's what we're really concerned about. That really leads to my next question, which was an article entitled the ESG Data Challenge. 
and in many different corporate functions, data is the challenge. But I was wondering if you could discuss how SSGA sees the data challenge in ESG and what you suggest to bridge that gap. Yeah, certainly there is data challenges. And also, you know, the history of having this information is limited. So as we get more and more information, which we're seeing, it's becoming more consistent, comparable, and financially material, but still there's a long ways to go. But as we see this information to continue to manifest and standardize and become more quality as well and comparable, you're going to see abundance of different investment products arise. You're going to see a lot of different ways of thinking about portfolios, and this is a positive thing. So what we've tried to do is we've tried to rely on commonly accepted frameworks. For example, we think that SASB is a really great framework as a starting point. So we like SASB because it's commonly accepted by trillions of dollars of assets under management, including Stage 3 Global Advisors. We think it's great because it focuses on financial materiality. We also like that it's industry-specific because what's financially material in one sector may be completely different than another sector. We understand disclosure fatigue and we want companies to focus on what's really important. So using this SASB as a baseline, we created the R factor, which is our proprietary ESG score. We outline exactly how we're calculating the score to companies and companies can request their score, measure and monitor their progress against SASB. We've also implemented voting guidelines and engagement priorities related to our R factor score. Our investment portfolio managers are taking into account R factor in, in a variety of different ways. So you can see the integration throughout the organization, but we expect companies to continue to enhance the level of disclosure and the quality of disclosure, but it also starts with our expectations. And it's our responsibility as investment managers to be transparent on what we want to see. It shouldn't be a black box. We should establish credibility, not only in our, our disclosure expectations, our engagement priorities, and our voting activity as well. If you look at, for example, how we're voting on shareholder proposals over the last five years or 10 years, it's very consistent and it's credible. Companies know where we stand. They know how we're analyzing proposals. They can predict how we're going to vote. And yes, we are evolving our frameworks to be best in class, but we like this transparency because it builds credibility and allows for more constructive engagement. And our R factor, as you mentioned, is one way to do it. We're clear on the disclosure that we want to see, and we think that this is going to help move the data conversation in the right direction to having it be more comparable, quality, and financially material. Then I'd like to now turn to diversity. And you talked about how the lack of diversity really can negatively impact a company, but I'd like to flip to what you've talked about in other areas as an opportunity. How do you see diversity as an opportunity to capture or greater shareholder value? Absolutely. I mean, beyond some of these positive benefits that I mentioned in terms of seeing risk from different perspectives, more innovation, we think that diversity is really closely correlated with human capital management and corporate culture as well. And in a time, especially now when you're seeing the great resignation and companies viciously competing for talent and retaining such talent, we think that having progressive diversity and inclusion practices will promote employee satisfaction. It'll promote a more inclusive workplace and more engagement amongst employees as well. So we think it's a great way to have more robust human capital management practices as well. I heard an, a recent analogy, which I think it was fantastic. It was a sports analogy when you think about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And diversity is just about having the right people on the roster. It's having a diverse set of players. Equity is about making sure that the starting lineup is equitable, that the right people are getting the right opportunities. And inclusion is about passing the ball to the right people as well. So really harvesting 
know, the power of diversity. Diversity is about not just having diverse set of people being equitable, but also making sure that there is an inclusion aspect as well. And so I think that companies should be considering this, setting goals and targets across their organization, focusing on this, that management should be held accountable for achieving such goals and that the board should have oversight of it. Because as you mentioned, there's so many positive benefits as well that companies could embrace by having more progressive diversity inclusion practices. Then I'd like to ask you to maybe turn down the road a little bit now to maybe 2025 or beyond. We've talked about the evolution of State Street Global over the past five years and how you've helped companies as a part of this evolution of your stewardship. Where do you see all this going down the road more and better or more initiatives, more companies engaging, or or just simply more diverse thought leading to more innovation? I think that human capital management is going to be an incredibly important area for the next five to 10 years as well. And I think as more information is available on the workforce, what you're going to see is a revolution in the quality and the quantity of information related to human capital management. So I think companies are going to start thinking about how they're integrating employee voice or employee feedback and using that to not only identify risk across their organization, to also identify opportunities in their organization. Because if you think about it, everything that a company needs to know to be successful probably over the next five to 10 years is probably already known somewhere across the organization, maybe by the frontline workers. So really tapping knowledge of employees, listening to employees is also, you know, if a company is willing to listen to their employees, they're probably willing to listen to diverse perspectives. They're probably going to be more open to engaging with stakeholders and shareholders as well. So I think that there's going to be a lot more focus on the employees. And I think that employees and shareholders have a common goal as well, and that can be looked at as allies. So we are looking for, you know, the boards to have proper oversight of human capital management, where we've become much more clear on our expectations on what human capital management disclosure looks like. And we'll continue to engage on human capital management more generally on topics like employee voice, obviously diversity and inclusion. And this also fits into our focus on corporate culture as well. So that's where I think in addition to climate change, you're just going to see a lot of focus over the next five years. Well, Ben, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on State Chick Global War would be the best place they could go. We have a lot of resources of all this thought leadership I've mentioned on our website, ssga.com. And on the Asset Stewardship page, you can find a lot of great information. And I look forward to continuing this conversation with you. Thank you, Tom. I really appreciate your time.